Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Ian Campbell. He's the CEO of Nucleus Research. We're going to be looking at value in all its gory, glory detail. We're going to define what value is, what benefits are, the difference between good and maybe bad benefits in terms of your sales. We're going to look at the blind spots that you have, the questions you're not asking yourself, in order that we hope you're going to take value and tackle it differently. One of the big obstacles many salespeople face is how do they handle the ROI conversation? Most of them butcher it. Let's be honest about it. If you've been a buyer and uh, a seller talks about ROI, it tends to be very feature function led and then very financial, and it doesn't explore all the different types of value. So we're going to explore that too. So without any further ado, Ian, welcome. Marcus, hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thank you for coming. Can we start with a couple of minutes on your history? What's your background? How did you get here? Sure. So I've been in the technology space forever. Started as a computer programmer way back and really worked for uh, research firms for the last uh, 20-something years. Run Nucleus Research, which is a research firm, technology research firm, just similar to other firms. Uh, we advise vendors and end users. But our particular point of view is around value. What is the ROI of a particular product? Not do we like it or not? There's nothing, there's no list for us. It's everything's good, everything's bad. It's what's right for the particular customer, whether it's a customer buying technology or how a vendor presents their technology. So how do they present it in a way that shows value to their customer? So we help both sides and users, users and vendors. I've been doing it for a very long time. Okay, so what led you to lead this business then? I've been in the industry before, and I had worked for IDC for a very long time. And the technology industry is really around opinions. What do people think about something? You get a lot of opinions out there. And what yeah. I realized when I formed Nucleus was there was no firm looking strictly at return on investment. The question of whether something is good or not is unique for a particular situation. So if I take a CRM system, for, for instance, if you deploy a CRM system to a company with a thousand salespeople, you're likely to get a great return on investment. It's like to have a lot of value. But if that particular vendor, that particular customer only has two salespeople, then deploying a very expensive CRM system may not work for them. So it's not just about whether something's good or bad. It's about whether it's good or bad for them. And that requires a sort of rigorous financial approach that says, are they going to get the value out of this or not? And that's really the crux of where Nucleus fits in the market. Right. Okay. So I'm inherently lazy and... I like to see the connections. And to me, what you've just described is potentially a way of cutting out a lot of the fat from my sales, my marketing, and my cost, simply by understanding the value that matters most to the customer, stop engineering product that doesn't matter to the customer, and give them what they want. That tends to lead to a rather frictionless sale because we've removed risk and uncertainty. So. Am I on the right lines here? Absolutely correct. Yeah. Let me uh, use an example. Here's an example that I use, and it's from, from the book that we just published. So if I told you that you could make money by raising baby alligators in your bathtub, would you do it? Unlikely. My what, if I told you, what if I told you you could make $10 million a year? Mm, I'd be tempted. You'd be tempted. Now, there is a number, Marcus, that you would say, I'll do it. And there's a number above which your wife is going to say, you are a genius. Even if they have to go to the gym every morning to take a shower because you can't go in your bathroom for the next year. So you would raise baby alligators in your bathtub and you could close off that bathroom and say, look, you can't use it for the next year, but we're going to make so much money from this. It's worth it. And your wife will still say you are the smartest person on the planet. So there is a number above which she will go for it. I think in her case, it would either be a very big number or would involve yeah. quite a lot of holidays. I'm not going to argue that the, 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 the benefit might have to be pretty high in some cases, but there is a number above which she's going to change her mind. The point really is that I didn't tell you anything about the product. 
I didn't tell you that alligators are fun to play with. I didn't tell you it's better than an alarm system. I didn't tell you anything about the features of the product. The only thing I told you was that it will deliver benefit for you. And you have turned around and said, I'll buy. And if you're smart, you probably say, I'm going to buy twice and I'll rent another, I'll rent another house and raise baby alligators. In fact, you will buy, you will rent as many houses as you can and grow as, and raise as many baby alligators as you can. So I've changed this from you being pushed through a funnel to you pulling yourself through the funnel because you've now seen the value. You said, whoa, I see the value of this. I'm going to run through the funnel myself. No more of that pushing the person to the next stage. Now you're a consultant showing the customer the value. And if I can show the customer the value, I change the whole tone of the conversation from a push sale to one where it's consultative and they're pulling themselves through. I couldn't agree more. I mean, for those of you who've listened to the pod for a while, it's far better to have your buyer surrender the order than you close them. It's far better that they do the presentation, handle their own objections. They manage and navigate through their own organization. And you're the guide arriving at the right moments, helping them to facilitate the decision. That, that's our job as sales. It's not to sell to them. It's not to convince them. They have to convince themselves. So what Ian's saying about finding the value for the individual, that's what really matters. So how do we actually get there? Because well, for most people, they're still going to churn out more features and functions. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm going to agree with you completely. In fact, I, I, I point out that in the sales situation today, the most important part of the sale, you're not in because you're selling to a champion who then has to turn around and sell internally to someone, whether that's a casual conversation in a hallway or a formal presentation to a finance person or to a manager, that person that wants to that is your champion, that person has to turn around and give a pitch. And the clearer that pitch is, the better off you're going to be. And if that pitch is around, look, if we buy this product, we'll save $500,000 a year. And it's only going to cost us $100,000 to do it. Done. I don't want to know anymore. I know that I'm going to do this. So if you're arming your champion with that key word, those key words, then you're going to make it a lot easier for them to be able to pitch internally. So absolutely. So I also agree with you that when it comes to ROI, a lot of salespeople will sidestep the issue. I don't want to know. It's a finance metric. Maybe I'll pull in some expert. Uh, maybe I'll hope they don't talk about it. But a lot of folks will look at the sales funnel and say, I know what the typical sales funnel is. I'm going to go through each stage in the funnel. I'm going to hope they don't ask me any finance questions. If they do, I might pull in an expert, but I'm going to hope I'll close without it. And that's very typical. And it's typical because really ROI seems to be a complicated pro uh, process. It's really not. First thing I want you to think about is, think about that funnel as having two sides. The funnel has the side you already know. You know that. You, you pull in a lead, you qualify the lead, you align your proposition, whatever the stages are in the funnel that you already know. But think about that funnel as having another side. The other side of the funnel is the finance side of the funnel. That's the value side. And think about the value side as having three stages. At the top of the funnel, it's here are all the different ways we deliver value for customers. Here are all the benefits we provide. The next stage, that middle part of the funnel, is here are other companies like you that have achieved benefits. And the third one is here are the benefits you're going to get. So think about that funnel as having two sides. I do the first side. I qualify the lead. I don't really do. And then I'm talking about all the different ways we deliver benefit. Then I'm aligning the proposition. I'm getting closer with the customer. I'm going down to that, those next stages in the, in the funnel. I'm talking about other customers just like them that have achieved benefit. So how do we deliver, deliver benefit? How have others achieved benefit with us? How will they achieve benefit? So think about those three stages in the value conversation. Then we get to the bottom to do the business case. You've already really done all the hard work just by talking about the benefits. It can be very simple if you just approach it with three simple stages. And we really haven't talked about ROI. We've just talked about benefits. That's it. So again, I think part of the challenge that we've got is there is an emotional attachment that people have to what they learned first. Many of the people who lead sales today were trained in methodologies that were developed before neuroscience and before behavioral psychology and so on. And the net result of that is that they're teaching 
that they're, they're old generals teaching people to fight the last war. Yeah. So the customers have evolved, but salespeople really haven't. I think part of this is that that there is still a belief that salespeople need to control the sale. If you want customers to come towards you, trying to coerce, manipulate, and control them is probably going to send their limbic system crazy and cause them to shut down and run away from you, which is why you have a fat middle of a funnel that's stuck. Right. So let's deal with that blind spot. That's exactly right. And, you know, a lot of the salespeople are learning sort of some bad habits. They, read, you know, talk to the C-suite or find the pain point, or when they sit through a sales meeting, uh, that annual sales conference, they're learning all the features of the product. Here are all the things the product does. And if you ask a salesperson, what do you do for me? They'll say, well, it's blue and it has this uh, new feature and it does all the, they're going to know the features list. We want to change change that around. And I absolutely agree. Today's customer is far more sophisticated. So they're coming to a deal today with a lot of knowledge. And I'd say, think about them like an elephant. They're already fully stuffed with information about you. You can't push an elephant. You're going to have to lead them. So if you decide that I'm not going to push this elephant anywhere, what I'm going to do is help guide them with very gentle movements. That's what I need to do. Because they've already come to me fully aware of who are the competitors, why are they looking at me, what can I do? They've already read reviews of us. Nobody's walking in saying, I don't know anything about CRM. They know everything about CRM. They're walking in trying to understand how you can best help them. So guiding them is the better way. One of the first things you can do is catch yourself when you're falling into a features list. One of the biggest mistakes salespeople will make is, let me talk about what my product does rather than how it helps. So it's really easy. There's only three things you can do for a customer, only three. I can either increase the productivity of your users, I can reduce your costs, or as a byproduct of those two, I can increase profit. That's all I can do. I can only increase productivity, reduce cost, or as a byproduct of those, increase profit. So every feature that you have in your product, tie it back to the benefit. So for instance, We are going to increase the productivity of your salespeople because we have this CRM system that will help them better schedule meetings, help them better do a better outreach, and it's got an easy-to-use human interface. So when you talk about the features, easy-to-use human interface, better outreach, talk about how it helps increase productivity. Because it's delivered as a SaaS model, we are going to reduce your IT costs because you won't have to build an IT system. So draw that link between the feature you're talking about and the benefit they'll achieve. Better, talk about the benefit they'll achieve and all the features you have within your product that support that benefit. That can be many benefits. There's different types of benefits. But ultimately, there's only those three. When is the wrong time to use this information? And when is the right time to use this information? So think about that funnel in those three stages. The last thing you want to do is come out of the gate hard with a, here's what the average ROI is from our clients by now. You want to be subtle about this. Here are all the benefits we have. Now, one of the easiest things you can do is ask the customer. Because that customer is coming to you like an elephant, already fully stuffed, now they already have an idea of what the benefits are. Just ask them, what are the three things you're trying to accomplish with our CRM system with your CRM deployment, with your ERP deployment, whatever the product is, they will give you an idea of what they're trying to do. I want to make it more efficient for my salespeople. I want to reduce my ongoing costs. They're going to give you a trigger that says, okay, this is a cost discussion. This is a productivity discussion. What is the general discussion going to be around? Now, there are only two, one or two benefits that drive a deal. And think about the last deals that you've closed. Usually one or two big things that drive it, two or three supportive things, and that's it. We've done 1,500, maybe 2,000 ROI case studies here that we've published. Of all of them, there's never been more than five benefits in the case study. Really only two, two or three more that support it. So if you're coming up with this long list of ways you help the customer, you've probably messed up. Well, slow down, rethink, and say, what are those two things that are really going to drive drive this deal? Because all the other ones are extraneous. They're not going to help. They're only going to take away from, from your business case. So how do I focus on those things that really matter? So let's spend some time on definitions. So let's define value, benefit, and return on investment. Sure. 
if we look at return on investment, that would be a calculation. And we already know what that calculation is. If you put money in a bank, you know what it is. You give them $100, you get back $10 a year. It's a 10% ROI. I mean, you've seen the big signs. Fees and and all the all the small print and yeah at the end after taxes is probably not worth the effort but you've seen the sign when you walked into the bank so you've got a general idea of how that works that's a calculation value you can define more broadly value is how the customer sort of perceives that calculation and that could be a cost benefit ratio that could be NPV another calculation. But does the customer perceive value as opposed to does the customer want to calculate ROI? So you calculate ROI, you perceive value. So value is what am I going to get back versus what what's it going to cost me? Benefits are what am I going to get? And usually, and I'll give you another trick. People, salespeople often talk about benefits as hard or soft. I've got hard benefits and soft benefits. I've probably heard people say that. First, stop saying it. What we want to say is benefits are either direct or indirect. You're either going to achieve them directly or indirectly. But I'm going to give you another tip. There are actually four kinds of benefits, not two. And this is really important because it takes benefits and says some benefits are good, some benefits are not good. And when we see a really convoluted deal or a deal where it stalls, especially the deals that stall, they usually stall because you've thrown a bunch of benefits at the customer, some of which are not believable. So believable benefits are ones that absolutely will happen. So I could say to you, I'm going to save you $100,000 a year. Okay, you believe me. It's $100,000. There's no variation. I know what the number is. I believe it. I believe it's going to happen. You could say, we expect to save you $100,000. We hedging order to save you money. Okay, how much do I believe it? Not as much. Um, so that's a what we call a first order benefit. I expect I will do something. A second order benefit is I expect to do something. The third order benefit is, increase productivity. You can see we're going from really strong to sort of weaker. If I increase your productivity by 10%, what's that worth? Now I'm getting into a benefit I don't like as much. And then a fourth order benefit is a story. Because we're giving you this new software, your employees are happy. Because they're happy, you'll have less turnover, so you'll save money on hiring. Well, yeah, but it's a long convoluted story. Does this make sense? So I go from something I really believe, I'm going to cut a cost. I intend to cut a cost. I will make you more productive to I've got this distant benefit that's disconnected. So if you throw your benefits in those buckets, you can see which ones are strong, meaning the ones that are really going to drive a business case and drive a decision to which ones are sort of fluffy stories and aren't going to drive a decision. That is very interesting. Okay, so let's define value in the terms that most people do and then in broader terms as you do. So when we look at value, what we want to do is talk about the customer and the benefits they're going to receive first, and then flow into that, here's what it's going to cost. So let's talk through your benefits would be how the discussion would go. You're going to reduce some costs, you're going to increase some productivity, and we can do some calculations around that to get a rough idea of what that number is going to be. Let's say it's 500000 a year. To say, well, our product is only going to cost you 100000 a year. So the benefit ratio, the cost of the benefit looks pretty good. So the customer will perceive really good value out of that. And we can actually sit down and do that calculation. That would be an ROI calculation. And I'll give you a tip. You, you want to lead with payback period, not ROI. This is a psychology thing. So in this example, I said, you'll get back $500,000 a year, and it's only going to cost you 100. Well, the math tells me that in a little over two months, I'll cover my costs. back. So in the first two months, I'll cover my cost. That's payback period. But I can feel that. So when you talk to the customer and say, it looks like if you buy our product, given the benefits you're going to receive, you'll cover the cost of our product in the first two months. That's something I can internalize and feel. If I tell you that the ROI is 500%, well, intellectually, I know what that number is, but I can't feel it as much as covering the cost. So a good trick is, Lead with how long until you cover your cost, and then follow up with what the ROI is going to be. Don't lead with ROI, because ROI is an intellectual number. Payback is a felt number. So once you do talk the customer through the benefit and the cost, that being the value, the perceived value, show them how long until they cover the costs, and they're going to feel that much better. It's interesting because so much of what you're saying is the flip side of what I spend my life teaching people, which is that you have to remove perceived risk. Uh, 
the perceived benefit is the benefit that the customer sees. What you see doesn't make one jot of difference. What you consider to be really important makes no difference at all. And in fact, will get in the way because customers hate to be led. They I, hate being sold. 100% agree with you. And, and the example I often use with salespeople is you may think you sell screwdrivers, but if they're opening, if they're using that screwdriver to open a paint can, you sell paint can openers. <laughs> so, so talk to the customer about how good your paint can openers are. Doesn't matter what you think it is. This is, again, another problem because most salespeople talk at the customer. They don't talk with or to the customer, and they certainly don't listen. I've been playing with a new strap line, which is ask, listen, outsell the competition. And you know, the, the grim reality is that most people don't ask good questions. They really don't listen at all, because if they did, it would inform them what question to ask next. And as a result, they sound just like and look like everybody else. Right. So they don't differentiate. If you want to differentiate, make people feel different. As the economy starts to tighten, what I'm guessing, because I've seen it in the other four recessions I've lived through, people's behavior will go barbaric. They'll do more outlandish things in order to make a buck. The customer will not feel safe. The bar was low before. Now it's rock bottom and it's going to get lower. Well, like you, I've been through these before, so I've seen the same thing. There's always this trend that downward trend, everybody pushes harder. I'm going to tell you it's not going to work this time. So each time it's been worse, this time it's going to be worse. It's not going to work. It's not going to work because you have more sophisticated buyers, because those buyers aren't going to put up with the pressure. Also, the people who they have to talk to won't put up the, with the pressure. You may pressure your champion, but when then champion turns around and tries to make the deal internally, your deal stalls. I'll argue that if you have a deal that stalled, it didn't stall because you didn't go through the features list. It stalled because you didn't tell them what the benefits of the product was, because you didn't arm them with what they could do to sell internally. Well, partly, but there's a step before that, which I'm going to challenge you on, which is that I've never listened my way out of a sale. I have talked my way out of plenty. The research that Matt Dixon and his team pulled together in the Jolt Effect is really instructive on this, which is that at the point where the buyer hesitates, the majority of close lost no decision end up in a stall and being ghosted because the buyer had a doubt or concern that the salesperson didn't bother to uncover. What they did was they featured and functioned them to death, or they ratcheted up the pain. Now, yeah. I'm with you that we need to keep the value in mind. So one of the, my thoughts as I've been developing my coaching system is that we need to start with a propulsion system, if you like, that gets them to see the better future and gets them to understand that value. And as we go, we build tension. So from X to Y by when, you know, they want to be at Y, but there's a gap. Our job is to help create certainty, both in terms of that it will happen, i.e. we are credible and reliable, but that they can feel safe, which is where the value comes. Because when I can say with confidence, because I've seen it happen 1,500 times before, and your context, your circumstances are similar, and I am selling because it is the right thing for you, not because I'm going to make quota or I'm going to make President's Club. And I've consistently behaved in that way. It's very easy for buyers to buy. There's no resistance. My favorite type of close is when a customer comes to me and asks to upsell themselves. Right. That's a right. really, really good close. I would agree that... You know, more than anything, it's about credibility. And what I teach is I would rather have a credible ROI, an ROI they believe, than an ROI they don't believe. So give me 300% they believe over 3,000% they don't believe. You're better to help the customer through what those benefits are, help the customer understand it, guide the customer to understand how it's going to help them. Uh, I agree with you on the risk, which is why payback is so important. I know that 
after two months, I've covered my costs. Okay, I could breathe after two months. I know that I'm okay. The other thing you can use payback for is to say, hey, by month three, you could have been making money. Why is this decision taking eight months? So we could already be net positive with this if we use payback. So starting to talk in a way that does reduce their risk, reduce their fear, makes it easy for them to make the decision is a much easier way to do this than continuing to add pressure. What is it going to take to get you in this car today is not going to work today. How well, do well, I help? You're also doing that is uh, creating the tension because in their head, you've said, look, for five months of the year, you could be making profit on this. For every month that goes by, I mean, one of my favorite approaches is pain by numbers, where we just dissect what the pain really costs them. And we dissect it through the inter interconnection between things, because this is something that I see most sellers fail to do, which is to recognize that they are selling to customers that are a system. There are inputs and there are outputs, and there's stock. So the input is the tap, the faucet, and the output is the overflow and the plug, and the water is the stock. Now, if you, when you get into the bath, you're trying to get it to the right height, right temperature. But when you first put the uh, hot water on you know, to top it up, it comes out cold. So now you've got to adjust and you over-adjust and you know, it overflows and you burn your toes and all this kind of stuff. That's what's going on in your customer's business. There are all these different things that are connected with one another. They're not operating independently. And I think the real understanding of value is recognizing what the value is when they live with it and what the consequences of the decision are going to be. So we go beyond simply giving them the return on investment and you know, the financials, but we look at the ripple effect. Now, there lies masses of value. Because if, for example, I can eliminate the thing that takes up 85 to 95% of your salespeople's time in generating cost and administration and no return, wouldn't it make sense to maybe focus our attention on that and then redeploy them on something else? Right. Right. And the great point is, if that's the thing that they see that they believe talk about that when you work with the customer don't then go off and talk about some other feature because that one benefit alone will be more than enough to drive the deal forward so don't pile on more help the customer to understand and to, to add more foundation to that benefit and you can also use worst case you could say to a customer you and I both believe that we can eliminate 80% of the uh, regular work that your salespeople do and free up that time for sales. But even if the number is only 10%, it generates enough positive value to make this decision worthwhile. So using worst case also satisfies that risk thing for the customer. Very interesting. It's a great technique. It's surprisingly good. Even if you think the deal is good, Think about the elevator pitch. Think about your champion is in the elevator with that financial decision maker. And that person looks over and says, why are we buying this again? You want, you, what they want to say is, because we'll reduce the, we'll increase the productivity of our salespeople by at least 10%. And worst case, if it's only 1%, we still cover our costs in six months. That's all they need to say. And they've signed off on the check on the, on the contract. So give arm them with that sound bite that helps them to pitch it internally. And this is the key. Ian made the point that much of the selling is going on internally without you there. Uh, the research on this tells us that only 17% of the entire buyer's journey is in front of salespeople. And that's spread across all the salespeople across the entire buyer's journey. So that's every one of your competitors too. You have very, very, very little time in front of the customer which incidentally is a metric you should be measuring because if your people are spending 6% or 12% of their time in front of the customer, you may want to look at ways that you can increase that because the more time they spend in front of the customer, the more likely they are to actually bring home prey. The challenge here is we need to be asking much, much better questions. And we need to be looking at sales through the eyes of the buyer. We need to think as the buyer. How does ROI help us to do that? Well, 
I agree completely. You have to really put yourself in the in the seat and the shoes of that buyer and say, what are they challenged with and how do I help them to justify this decision? I'll give you another a little interesting trick. You, I agree completely that the time that you're spending in front of a customer is tiny compared to the total sales time of a particular project because that champion that you have is doing a lot of sales internally. But you have a, another secret champion that you're probably not using as much as you could, and those are your reference customers. So if you think about the reference customers you already have, even if your champion, your current deal isn't looking for a a, a reference, bringing out those reference customers who can then talk about value. And that will help your prospect understand. And here's, you know, think about your references. When was the last time you talked to them? Probably maybe recently. But when was the last time you talked to them about hey, what were the benefits you received from my product? So that when they turn around and are being used as references, they're selling the value of what you do. If you crystallize that for them, they can turn around and say, you're right, my salespeople are 10% more productive. Great. Next time you use them as a reference, that's the first thing they're going to say. Yeah, I'm sure that you're a nice person. I'm sure you're talking about golfing. I'm sure you're talking about your dinners. I'm sure you're easy to work with. None of that matters. What matters is, because I worked with them, I increased the productivity of my sales rep by them, whatever that benefit is. So the next time you're talking to your references, let's turn them into slightly better salespeople by helping them to understand. And that's just a nice, friendly conversation. How did we help you? And just talk them through that. Well, again, this speaks to the really terrible habits that people have fallen into because we got lazy. How often have we not gone back to our customers and spoken to them except at renewal? How often does the customer feel forgotten and feel used because we sell to them? We say we're going to be, you know, we're customer centric and then we <laughs> chuck them over the fence to someone completely new and they have to start all over again. Right. So there's this lack of alignment. There's lack of congruence in terms of how we behave towards the customer. And I think a lot of this really needs to be addressed if we are going to be able to have long-term lifetime relationships with customers where they want to come back again and again and renew. And you know, they'd sign up to the same terms in a blink of an eye a hundred times in a row. I mean, well, it's insane that we think it's okay to create a deal where we're going to get fired in 12 months. Right. It, it, it Even more so with SaaS products where you have to go back in every year or two and resell. The more you're in front of that, the better off you're going to be. But if you want to become a sales manager and you're just a salesperson today, be a sales manager of your references because it's those references that will help close the deal. You can be the laziest salesperson in the world if you have great references because all you have to do is say, hey, I'll have Joe call you about how he got value out of the product. And that's it. That's all the salesmanship you need really need to do. If you can crystallize it for those good references you have, they're going to help push the deal much more than you will. I love the idea of enlisting their help. However, it can wear very thin, very fast, especially if you only have a few customers and you're starting out. Yeah. Um, so what I would countenance there is maybe having video testimonials from your customers and do customer interviews with them that they allow you to record because they will be more instructive than any amount of guesswork. Yeah, and, uh, you know, to, to give a sales pitch for our company, you know, it's the ROI case study is probably the gold standard. So and we do hundreds of them every year. So it's the, that ROI case study that talks about what the customer achieved, what was the actual financial benefits, how did they get value? That's the, I'm not going to wear out my reference. I'm going to use these case studies. And of course, you can do it from a firm like ours, but you can do it yourself. When you do a reference, try to get those numbers in there, and then you're not going to wear out those references for those calls. You're going to be able to use those as marketing material. But yeah, absolutely far better than any, uh, of course, we're an analyst firm. So love the analyst reports, but an analyst report is not as valuable as a reference that said they actually achieved something. So getting that down, whether it's on paper, whether it's video, or whether it's out, outside firm that does it, that's critical. And again, I, I think in the market that we're going into, community is going to be really key. You've got reference customers 
have them become your advocates, have them create a space where they can discuss the use of your product, where they can criticize you, uh, but more importantly, uh, create the opportunity to have events where they can come, both physical and virtual, and mix and mingle with your prospects, and they can talk and they will do most of the work for you. And this can all be planned for. Yeah. And if you if you set it up ahead of time where you've already had those conversations and sort of crystallized those numbers in their brain, they're then using that. That's what they're talking about when they're standing around in the conference or in the in the social gathering. They're saying, by the way, here are all the benefits we achieve. So all you need to do is just a little bit of conversation, a little bit of a dinner or a lunch and say, how did you get benefit? And then try to restate that back to them. I know that you like the human inter- the new human interface we have. But how did that actually help your salespeople be more productive? And make sure you're taking it from a feature to an actual operational outcome that they achieved in some way. And that's those of those things are going to use. And also think about your current customers. They're already predisposed to like you because they made a decision. So they're sort of invested in this better has been a good decision. And they need to be able to turn around internally and say, look at what a hero I am, especially in a downturn. They're trying to save their own jobs. So they want to go back to their boss saying, remember that CRM system we bought? It's actually achieving some great value. So you're well, helping them to champion themselves. But there are two points that follow on from that. The first is that sales absolutely must learn the language of finance, uh, especially when you're doing big ticket, because that's what they look at they're going to and it needs to be framed in such a way that uh, the finance people can give it an easy nod um it also allows you to uh, create credibility for your champion because if you're selling t- to hr or marketing let's be honest they're not really very good at talking to finance um IT too, you know, they've not been historically brilliant at it. And many of their requests for money get kicked into touch. Well, if you can coach your internal champion, not only to get the deal, but to learn to speak the language of finance, the next time they're buying anything, they're in a better position. And that's where your credibility is also enhanced. Because to build trust, what we need are credibility, reliability, and intimacy over self-orientation and the intimacy piece comes because they know you have their back you're not going to sell them a pup you're not going to make them look bad you're not going to make them regret the decisions you're not going to make them regret on first use the fact that when they stalled and you can you know strong arm them into coming back now they've made a terrible decision and they were right the first time they don't want that And we have to mitigate against all of those uh, possible outcomes because what the uh, the customer wants to do is produce an outcome. So keep those words firmly in mind. What is it they want to produce and what is the outcome that they are renting from you? And understand that they're not going to keep your product in forever unless you're adapting and unless you're still fit for purpose. Sorry. Please come back. No, I was going to say, make them make them be excited about signing the deal. And they can be excited when they see the value. If they've been pushed into the deal, that's where deal stalls or you get ghosted when they're being pushed in the deal. When it comes to the ROI and the metrics, this is, uh, again, another sales pitch uh, for the book uh, that we published. But the value sale is on Amazon. Pick that up. It's uh, a sh- a reasonable read. It's uh, easy. It talks about all the metrics and how to deploy them. So if you're afraid of ROI, NPV, IR, all those metrics, there is a, a we've published a book in that and it's on Amazon that you can, you can read. It's pretty straightforward. And it's designed for salespeople to understand and to present as opposed to finance folks. So it does the finance correctly, but hopefully in a way that's consumable. So there is a resource out there if you want to learn it. The more and I that can book get is the, called The Value Sale. The value sale, it's available on Amazon today. It did make Wall Street Journal bestseller. So uh, have a read. Uh, and uh, if you have any questions, of course, about any of that stuff, uh, thevaluesale.com has a lot of other uh, work uh, on it there. It sounds to IRR. me like this might be the cure for bad use of the challenger sale and other such approaches. Would that be fair? It would be fair to say that I wrote the value sale because I thought it was this decade's version of the challenger sale. I think 
in the old decade, in the old days, you could challenge a customer to a deal. Today, you have to show the value. And that's probably why we titled it that way. But yeah, the value sale is considered the kind of next generation or what we would look at as being how you can better sell today. I'm going to challenge you on this. And I think it's not an either or. You need both because people move towards or away from depending on where they are in their life cycle um, of their business, of their job, their product, their market, are they in startup? Are they in continuation, growth or hypergrowth? Are they in turnaround or recovery? And we as sellers need to adapt to meet our buyer where they are. And one of the really interesting things that I've noticed, and it's only something that I've become really aware of in the last three, four years, is the buyer's journey and the complete failure of salespeople and sales organizations to align their cadence of touch points and their communication with where the buyer is in their journey in order to ensure that they align and they turn up at their struggling moments. Instead, we batter them to death with crappy messages that no one cares about, that aren't timely, relevant, or valuable, and you end up in spam. And then you wonder why the gold standard on digital marketing is a 3% click-through with a 15% conversion rate. I mean, for goodness sake. That means you fail 99.9955% of the time to generate revenue. That's crap by anybody's standards. If you ran health and safety or finance, you'd be in jail. Or if you were a pilot in an aircraft, you wouldn't be yeah. uh, you wouldn't be doing that very long either. You can't try. And it, it's funny because the natural tendency is let's just widen that funnel. Let's just get more leads in. And all you're doing is getting bad leads. You're not setting them up. And you're not you, in a perfect world. It's not a funnel. It's just a pipe. You bring somebody in and you're able to talk them through each stage. But of course, we don't. We batter them down and hope that we can get them down to the bottom. And they fall out of different stages based on how tired they are or how inefficient my message is. And I, you know, I would agree with you on the challenger sale. The goal there is let's have salespeople that understand each stage and continue to manage the deal. But let's change it from pushing the deal to talking about how something helps the customer. And that customer will be more likely to go to each step in that funnel and work toward the bottom. You're better off getting more people through the bottom than getting the top. The top of the funnel doesn't really matter because you don't make any money at the top of the funnel. You only make money at the bottom. So let's get them through to the bottom. There are four platforms. If you imagine quadrants and Outside the bottom right-hand quadrant, there's your total addressable market as an amorphous blob. And the bottom right-hand quadrant, you've got your marketing platform. This is where you scream, we're here, look at me. And the objective of that is to shove them onto your selling platform. And the selling platform is where you say, this is what we do. And you demo them and you pitch and do do all of that stuff. And the idea there is to move them onto your buying platform, okay, where they then make the decision to buy. But the problem is that that part is done so badly, those first two parts, that you end up losing 97, 99% of your prospects, and you drive many of them to your competition for many years. Then you put them onto the buying platform, and the buying platform is where you help them make the decision and get out of the way in order to put them onto your loyalty platform. And this is where you make all of the money, not even in the buying platform, because in SaaS, you make 18% average margin for the new business. But for expansion, you get 1150%. Now, when you're thinking about this, how are the people using value in order to create the expansion sale and how are they using it to create uh, the partner sale? Because both of those create exponential growth as opposed to the individual one-off ploddy direct. It's really a change in selling a SaaS product where I want to create a consultative relationship on it, where I want somebody to be positive about the deal from the old uh, sale where I'm pushing somebody through and selling a product and walking away. You have to treat each customer as somebody that you are cultivating. You are showing them the value they get because they're the ones that will sell that expansion, that growth, that more sales uh, as you get in. So you've put a lot of effort to get to that point to get a very low margin, as you point out, which is exactly true. 
the real margin is those next few years. How do I expand the sale? How do I continue to keep that sale? And that's having a positive customer. And the only way you keep a positive customer is every year when they sign a check, they say, right, this is worth it for me in whatever way they define worth it. And it's up to you as the salesperson to not just get to that line, but to keep going to keep that customer excited and happy. So this, the other side of that coin is measurement uh, metrics and compensation. So what do we have to do in order to change the compensation and the measurements that we track in order to ensure that sellers focus on the value and lifetime value of a customer instead of just focusing on the transaction? Yeah, I'm certainly getting to the transaction as a lot of the heavy lifting, but not a lot of the profit. So you've got to split that between getting to the transaction and the renewable. And there can be some form of customer uh, survey around that. How does the customer feel about you? And that impacts the, rela- the, the, the compensation that you get. So that regular feedback from the customer gives you some idea of how good is that salesperson? How much are they doing the after-sale follow-up? Because there's really no after-sale. In a SaaS product, it's a continuous sale. It's always happening. So don't think of it as a before and after, but think of it as a line that then continues. And you have to continue to grow that account. So it could be on growth over whatever the baseline is. It could be on uh, feedback from the customer. But you have to recognize this is two stages. That effort that gets to the stage of pulling the, tr- the initial uh, trigger, making that decision, and then the effort that keeps it going and keeps it growing. Well, I think there should be two triggers that everyone who was involved in helping the customer achieve their goal should be recognized and rewarded on. And that's when the customer reports back, I got what I expected when I made this investment. And the second is the third renewal, because that third renewal means we've actually done a good one. Yeah, you know, the, they'll probably the, you might slip through the second year because they forgot. It's very unlikely to make it through the third, yeah. and I think that's a, a moment of celebration. We're not looking at our leading indicators as the customer wants to see them. Customers are very sophisticated, and they have AI, so they can reverse engineer your costs. And there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, one of my pals 20 years ago used to get a team of Indian mathematicians and uh, statisticians to do that. Now you can do it in minutes. I I interviewed a very senior procurement lady about uh, nine months ago, and they're using AI in order to analyze the competition, analyze different suppliers, the different functionality. They know everything by the time you've arrived. What they're really interested in is, do you really have my back and do you understand the problem I'm trying to fix? Every place for salespeople who think that it's all about the product. Yeah, and I agree with you. Certainly, we, we have an AI tool that's built into our research database, and you could very quickly query and find out who are the competitors, what are the typical costs, what are the typical types, types of benefits. So all of that data is already available. It's easy to extract. So you are walking into a much more sophisticated sale and being seen as that consultant, that person who has the customer's back is going to be more critical than anything. And not just initially, not just I'm trying to sell you, but I'm trying to work at a long-term relationship with you where you have a positive experience with us. Well, I was going to say that the big differentiator and the big money is earned by people who can keep going back time and time again to customers. And this is where we have to really shift our thinking away from a quick win to a genuine win-win. Most people think that a win-win is you get to a point where both sides are happy eventually. That's not the case. A real win-win is where both sides would willingly sign up to the same deal 100 times in a row in the blink of an eye. In order to do that, neither side has to compromise. That's difficult. It takes time. It takes patience. And you're only going to get that, especially with complex and sophisticated sales, by having multiple touch points, building a relationship over time, and understanding the interplay between the different moving parts in the business and the ripple effects of the decision to buy your stuff. And that's only going to come. You're only going to understand that if you're speaking to your customers. Yeah, speak to them and then listen to what they're saying. Listen to how they intend to use your product. Again, that paint can opener strategy. Is that how they plan to use it? If that's what they're using your screwdriver, 
uh, as, then be the best pain can opener you can and show them the value they're going to get from that. And the more they understand the value they're going to receive, the easier it's going to be for them to then champion eternally, but also to be a long-term customer. They know they're getting value from you. And we were talking a while ago about the, the, the funnel and about bringing customers through. Remember those three stages. When you your initial contact with the customer, how do you deliver value? How all the different ways we deliver benefits for customers? How are other people achieving benefits? How will they achieve benefits? So when you bring a customer to the top of that funnel, start talking about that lead generation. Start talking about all the different ways you, you deliver benefits. And you're more likely to get somebody to go to that next step. Hmm, let me see how this might apply to me. Okay, here are other people like you. Let me see how it might actually let me do some calculations and see. So you're more likely to bring that customer through. But I'm letting the customer drive themselves through the funnel by chasing that value, by looking for that value as opposed to pushing them to the next stage. And the value is often very personal as well. In my world, what has really surprised me is the number of people who've come to me in order to be able to pay school fees. I've had a couple of people who've come to me because they wanted to pay for IVF treatment. And there are a couple of sets of twins out there are out there because their mum came to me for training in order to pay for it. Someone else wanted to knock down the wall to the next door neighboring apartment because she'd run out of wall space and she wanted to buy the apartment uh, to put her modern art collection in. This is where the value is for them. And I would never have been able to guess that it only came through conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd be surprised if you listen how much the customer will tell you. Uh, stop, if you just stop talking for a second and say, how do you intend to use it? What are different things you intend to, to get out of this? What's your motivation for doing it? They will go on because they're already excited. They're walking in and talking to you. They're predisposed to be excited about trying to, to chat with you about what what you can do together. So let them talk before you start talking. They'll give you an idea of where to go. In terms of creating partnership with the customer, what's your advice on that? It's about trust, as you point out, and credibility uh, more than anything. Just the more they trust that you are working in their best interest. And I know that we talk about a consultative sale and of course, and then people walk away. So there's a, people are predisposed to not believe you uh, to to extent as well, because they've already heard it a bunch of times, right? I think you have to earn that and you have to earn it by saying, Let's understand what's in it for you by working with us, how we can best help you. And using those kind of open phrases are going to really help to build that credibility. I don't need to sell you something. What I need to do is help you understand whether buying from me is valuable to you in some way. So turn that, co- that company around to be, to that, that conversation around to be more about them. How am I going, how are you going to achieve value from us? How can I help you understand whether this is worth it or not? How can I make sure it's worth it for you or not? So it's credibility, it's trust more than anything is going to be it. And that's conversation, but that's also listening and understanding what that customer wants to do. Okay. So what are some of the pitfalls that novices fall into when they first start? The biggest thing I think we touched on earlier is starting to go through a list of features. When you get stuck, people will fall to features. Salespeople will say, look at all the things it does. What we call in the analyst world, shiny object syndrome. They'll hold up a shiny object. They'll say, look, look at all this great stuff. And you say, yeah, what am I supposed to do with this? And so if you're falling into that shiny object syndrome, then you've got to stop and go, all right, let me stop talking about the features of my product. Let me turn it around. So the biggest mistake is that I'll give you another tip. Before you walk into any deal or any situation, think about two things. Think about breadth and repeatability. The more often a product is used and the more people that use it, the greater the potential ROI. So let me give you an example. A CRM system used by a thousand people, by a thousand salespeople. It's used mm-hmm. every day, touches a thousand people. It's got high breath, thousand people. It's got high repeatability, used every day. Okay. That has the potential for high ROI, meaning the customer is likely to easily see the value. Low breath and repeatability would be, for instance, onboarding software for new hires. So every time a new hire comes in, they can fill out this uh, form and automatically fills out all of the form and healthcare and whatever other information they need, right? Well, great. It's used once every time I hire somebody, right? So not that often, only once, and not by that many people, only new hires. So it's got low breath and low repeatability. 
So the greater the breadth and repeatability, the greater the chance that the customer will say, oh, this has high value. The lower the breadth and repeatability, the more reluctant that customer is to see the value in that. So the tougher it's going to be to sell value. So what you could do when you walk into a deal is say, is this going to be a good deal or a bad deal? And how do I talk about the value that I'm going to achieve from this in a way that the customer will understand? So again, example, let's go back to that CRM system. If I know that the CRM system will only be used by two salespeople, as opposed to the deal I just closed the day before, there was a thousand salespeople. I know that that small company is going to have a tougher time justifying the same product, which is why no product is perfect for everybody. That same product in a different situation isn't as good. So now I have to think about it before I even start talking, saying I should probably talk about reducing costs as opposed to increasing productivity. Because with only two salespeople, I'm not going to increase productivity by enough to justify my, the high cost of my product. So let's see if there are some other benefits here that I might want to dig for. So just looking at breadth and repeatability can give you an idea of whether this is going to be a difficult deal or a relatively easy deal for you. And then you can start to look at, can I increase either of those two factors in some way? And if you can, you're likely to make it easier for the customer to see that high value. How do you use milestones and gates? So milestones, often people will say a milestone is a time. In our world, when it comes to the financial ROI side, look at milestones as financially achievable, not achievable in a time frame. Because I'll argue that I can do anything in any amount of time with any number of consultants. So if money is no object, I can get everything done tomorrow, but it's just going to cost me a lot of money to do that. That means the ROI won't be there. So think about milestones. Think about that breadth and repeatability. I need a thousand people using it every day is likely to generate ROI. So by six months deployed, I want at least half of the people trained on the product, and I want them touching the product at least every other day. And those are metrics you could either build on the product or ask the customer whether they're achieving them. But if you set up metrics like that as milestones, you're giving them metrics that will achieve value for them because it's that breadth and repeatability that's likely to generate the ROI. Interesting. Okay. Ian, we're coming to time, unfortunately. We've done definitions, we've done milestones, gates, okay. So tell me this, I've embarked on this shift in terms of my selling. What are the roadblocks I'm going to come up against with customers in trying to get this message across? Customers are going to be reluctant to hear about ROI. So if you say, let's calculate the business case, or let's calculate the ROI, you're going to have a tough time from the beginning. So you want to talk about, let's understand the benefits first before you get to any form of financial calculation. And don't ask whether you need a business case for this yet. Assume they do. Assume they actually need a real spreadsheet done. And you can always get a, we have a free spreadsheet on our website. It's, uh, I think it's rotool.com. You can download a spreadsheet if you need it. So if you need to calculate ROI, there's a, a resource available. Just download the spreadsheet. And that'll help you actually do the math, the heavy lifting. But don't talk about business case or ROI as much as say, let's understand how we deliver benefits first, because that customer is going to be a little bit hesitant about, oh, we have our own process. We have the finance people. Now you've turned it into a consulting project or a burden. Let's not, it shouldn't be a burden. So if there's any pushback, it's going to be around that. After that, it should be an easy path for you. And then start to weave ROI, those metrics, that big, those, those big three letters, weave that into the latter part of the conversation, not the beginning part. And what we say is always talk about benefits in the first half of the deal. By the time we get to the second half, that's where you're talking about business case and numbers and things like that. Where does pain discovery fit into all of this? So pain, you know, that find a pain point thing, boy, you know, I have a visceral reaction to that. I, I think this is just me. You can argue with me on this one. I think it is the worst way to sell. And I think it's the worst way to sell because it's so rare that a customer understands a pain point. You can identify and say, by the way, you're in pain. But if the customer doesn't know they're in pain, it's a tough one. An example I use is, it's like calling everybody in the city and saying, is your TV broken because you sell TVs? Maybe, but... You know, there are other reasons why somebody wants to buy a TV, and it's not necessarily a television. It's not necessarily because they have a broken television. In fact, it's a terrible way, by the way, to sell mobile phones, right? Check your pocket. Did you lose your mobile phone? I've got one for sale. That's not going to work. You can stand there trying to sell Especially those Especially when bags. they're on their mobile. 
Right. Yeah. I say, hold on a second. Right. Yeah. The chance that they've lost their phone out of their pocket is practically zero. So if you're looking for that pain point, you're trying to identify it, you will occasionally. Now, often, and the other thing too is there may not be ever a pain point. So you may be selling a product where somebody says, you know, it works fine. My salespeople are selling. Everything's fine. What do you mean it's not good? Well, we can do it better. We can do it better is not a pain point. We can do it better is a benefit. So if they're already in business, probably don't feel any pain. They're doing something. They could have deployed an accounting system 30 years ago, and it's still working, and it's still working fine. We use Excel for our accounting system. Why should I change? Doesn't mean it hurts them. And in fact, here's a great way where you would use payback period, because you would say to the customer, that accounting system you were using, that's already covered its cost. I'm going to sell you something that will further increase your benefits and increase your productivity and give you more. So it's not that I'm telling you what you did is bad. There's no pain. What I'm doing is additional benefit. And again, this is a self-evident example. They didn't lose the phone. It's still holding their hand. But you're going to sell them a new one because the new one has a better camera, higher performance. It surfs the internet quicker, whatever it is. But you're going to sell them on all the things that they can do with it. So in that case, let me change the question slightly. What's the process of discovery that needs to go hand in hand with the ROI conversation? Yeah, I'd go back to it's still about how do you want to use it? So you've stopped at my kiosk to look at phones. What are you looking for in a phone? Better camera? What is it that you could get out of this phone? Just having a discussion with the customer will help to identify, hmm, let me show you phones that have better cameras, or I don't have enough storage space in the phone, or gee, you know, I, I put it down, I can't track it, or it's too small for me, the screen's too small. They're going to say something that gives you an idea of where they're going and why they're talking to you. So that discovery process, that listening, will tell you how you can then feed it back to the customer. Right. So again, this is the really important point about pain. It's pain discovery. You're not trying to create pain. You're not trying to impress upon them the pain that they don't know that they have. They need to discover it for themselves. Right. Buyers need to discover their reasons why they want to buy because you can't convince them. You can bully, coerce, lie, manipulate, omit, and do all the things that bad salespeople do. But the reality is you're fighting against 3 billion years of evolutionary hardwiring in their limbic system. I promise you, most of the time, their gut is going to tell them that you're a threat. Yeah. If you do what Ian and I are talking about today, you present zero threat to their brain. And that has to be your number one objective in every single conversation with everyone you meet. The second objective is to find common ground, which is precisely what we're discussing here, because you can only build bridges where you have stuff in common. If you're diametrically opposed or even some way off, I don't know, have you ever seen that wonderful image of the bridge that was built and neither side uh, sure. joined up? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you'd have thought they'd have maybe diverted it at some point and seen it. But anyway, that's what happens. And you get this massive disconnect. I think you need to pay attention to both because you've got to meet your customer where they are. If they're telling you that they're in pain, they're looking for pain relief. If they're looking for a better future and the payoff, you need to be able to give them that and you need to be ready to help them sell it internally, which seems to be, I think, the biggest lesson from today, which is get really good at ensuring your champion doesn't end up with egg on their face. Make sure that they are prepared and that you've co-developed the solution with their fingerprints all over it. Exactly right. If they've made the decision themselves, think about, again, the elephant example. That elephant's not going anywhere if you're trying to push them. The only way they're going is if you guide them. And if you guide them, they can do a lot. Absolutely. In sadly, we've come to time. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Ian, age 23. What one bit of choice advice would you give him that he, you know he'd have ignored, but would have been beneficial anyway? <laughs> I'm not sure I've got a good uh, piece of advice, but uh, you know, I think it's uh, I think it's more take more risks. If there's anything that we tend to be risk averse and you know guide, uh, but uh, always look for new opportunities because there are lots of opportunities out there that I think people overlook by not uh, not paying attention to what's presented to them. I think that's fair. And people don't really understand the difference between risking and sacrificing. So quick lesson for you all, 
Sacrificing is going from higher to lower value. There's no upside. Risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility you'll lose some or all of what you've got. So when you're making the decision, the key is to understand what's the worst case scenario and can you live with it? If you can't, don't make the decision. If you can, then you've got to explore what's the ripple effect. So what's the, what's the payoff? What's the upside? And people will gush with that. What's the downside? No, really. What else? What else? What else? What else? What else? Because we've got to look through clear eyes, not through pink spectacles. Who else is affected and what's the ripple effect? What's the price I'm making other people pay for my payoff? Because very often, me being successful buying my audit tool, like CRM, has a ripple effect on the rest of the organization. And can I live, what's the worst case scenario and can I live with it? And you can make a decision on something difficult with very limited information in under a minute. Yeah. And if you're in a tough spot, just ask yourself, which will make a better story in a pub? And it's the one that usually (laughs) requires taking more risk. Uh, (laughs) Ian, how can people get hold of you? Mark, it's easy. Uh, Reach out to me at uh, ian at uh, nucleusresearch.com. If you have any finance questions, valuesale.com, thevaluesale.com has a lot of great articles up on it if you want more depth on any of this stuff. But our folks here, the analyst team here is always willing to help. If you're a salesperson stuck, we are easy folks to get a hold of. Uh, just reach out to us and uh, happy to help you out. Oh, what a fantastic or anything. Thank yeah. you. That's really generous. And the book again? The value sale, it's on amazon.com and uh, you can definitely get it there. And hopefully I've made uh, finance and all of this a lot easier for sales to be able to implement in a sales process as opposed to an academic exercise. Excellent. And would there be value in people reading the case studies that you've published? Yeah, we've published a lot of case studies and they're uh, available on our website, but also a lot of uh, vendors have them on their websites as well. If there's any case study you want, uh, please reach out. We can certainly get you something. But yeah, reading the case studies gives you an idea, not just of what we produce, but if you're producing something yourself, maybe some of the things you can add to your own case studies and references, or maybe your marketing folks can take a look at to pump them up a little bit so they're a little more valuable as sales tools. Excellent. Ian Campbell, thank you. Marcus, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on your podcast. It's my pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe. Make sure you tag someone who could benefit from it. And if you could leave us a review, good, bad, indifferent, not fast, just want honest feedback. And if you're a seller who has been successful but the context has changed under your feet and you haven't been able to adapt. In the the blurb, you'll find a link to the seller uh, aptitude test. Now, I've revised it, we've reworked it, and what it will do is it'll help us to pinpoint an area that you can make instant gain on by identifying what you can stop doing or start doing immediately. And if you complete that, then I'm giving 15 minutes of coaching as part of that process. And we'll chat about whether or not you want to work with me at the end if you want to. But it's how do you actually get a quick win over the next week or so? So if that's something that you want to do, then please click on the link for the seller aptitude test. And we'll come back to you not only with your results, but a link so that you can book a time for a coaching call. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.